Hey everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes and I'm back this week with Terry Fakes. Our first podcast together this year, 2021. And we are going to do one of our favorite things, which is walk through the book of the Bible. Absolutely. And in this one, we're doing a great book. This is one I don't even feel like you need to do an overview to get people excited about. But I think in this overview, you'll see just the richness of this book. And uh, all the things that if you study, it really enhances the book, and that is the book of Philippians. So this has been one of your favorites for a long time, I know. It has. And certainly one of my favorites and an easy one to study. But uh, I want to start, like we usually do, talking about some background information that maybe makes this book a little bit easier to study. And we've talked about this before on the podcast. I, I am of the school that background info sometimes is overdone. You know, right. you get all this gratuitous background info, and then all of a sudden you realize that did not help me interpret this text at all. Right. It's great to know about what was happening, but what we want to focus on are the background info that really makes a difference in how you interpret and how you read this book. So, give us a little background into the context of what Paul was writing into. You know, he spent time in this town. What was this world like? Great question. The city of Philippi is named after Alexander the Great's father. And so this has this city has been here a long time. And I mean longer than the United States has been a country, you mm-hmm. know, centuries. It's a very well established. It started out with the Thracian people, then the Greek people, then the Romans conquered. So it's a melting pot. There are some Jews, but it's largely uh, Gentile population Mm -hmm. here. And it's a well-established city. It's very much a Romanized city by the time Paul shows up there. The inscriptions uh, archaeologically would indicate that Latin was the main language. Obviously, Greek was spoken widely here, but Latin was the official language, and it was very much a Roman city in terms of customs. Mm -hmm. Paul showed up in around, oh, let's say 51 AD on his second missionary journey, and planted this church. Mm -hmm. The initial converts uh, became Christians in about 51 AD. And then Paul, of course, goes on. I think that this letter was written while he was in prison in Rome around 60 AD, where the book of Acts ends, as a matter of fact. And he is writing it back because they have sent him a gift of money, probably, to help him support himself while he's in prison. So this is a pretty young congregation, maybe eight or nine years old, Mm -hmm. and he's writing them to encourage them and to say thanks to them. Young by our standards, old by (laughs) Paul's standards. It's funny to think in these days that this is a very young congregation, Mm -hmm. and yet one of the older congregations for Paul and his ministry. Right. Good point. You know... The Philippian church is really interesting because in the book of Acts, we see the story about the Philippian church in Acts chapter 16. And to set up the story, Luke tells us that this is the first foray into the Macedonian mission after Paul receives a call from the Holy Spirit, bringing them into Macedonia, which we would consider kind of Greece, very northern part of Greece. Uh-huh. And... So they come into town, and we see a different setup than we're used to in the book of Acts at this point. They come into town, and they don't go straight to a synagogue. And this is one of the things that sets this town apart from what we've seen so far is, like you said, probably not a big Jewish presence, probably some 
Jews here, mm-hmm. but not enough to have a synagogue, which means there's not that many Jews here. Yeah, you would need at least 10 Jewish men to start a synagogue. And either they just didn't have one, or perhaps there weren't 10 Jewish families there. Yeah, we don't know the background, but we just mentioned that to say this is a different context mm-hmm. than when Paul is is traveling to towns, starting in the synagogue, then branching out to the other people. Right. He, it says that when he arrives in town, they go to a place of prayer, which is not how you would describe a synagogue if right. there was a synagogue. And so. They find Lydia, who is, this is also an interesting way of describing things. She is uh, a seller of purple goods who is a worshiper of God, it says in chapter 16, verse 14 of Acts. Uh, So she is not Jewish, probably. Right. Uh, She is instead, and her name tells us she's probably not Jewish, but she is a businesswoman. But in some way, she is a worshiper of God. And so Mm -hmm. it creates a touch point for them to do ministry. And the interesting thing about about this, and some of the commentators pick up on this, the Church of Philippi is a very diverse city, and the founding of the church is a very diverse founding. So Mm -hmm. you have a wealthy business woman named Lydia. She's a seller of purple dye. Let's us know she's upper class merchant. She's probably doing pretty well financially. Mm -hmm. The other two people that we see are a middle class jailer. So this is a person who... Is involved with the state, a uh, person whose loyalties certainly don't lie with a new religious movement, right. the municipal government instead, and then a slave girl that we know nothing about other than she has been possessed. Paul casts a demon out of her. It causes mm-hmm. a huge uproar in the town because the idol markets are, are rattled. And uh, these are the three converts we hear about starting the Church of Philippi. Right. So you have the entire spectrum of people who are present in this town, and this is the this is the foundation for the church. Absolutely, and you know I think that's a great lesson for our time. By the way, is the gospel? Sometimes we think and we reach out with the gospel to people that look like us, and there's nothing wrong with friendship evangelism, but the gospel transcends all ethnic backgrounds, etc. And we, I think we sometimes forget the power of the gospel to reach to people from mm-hmm. all walks of life. Certainly. So Paul is there for a little while, starts some trouble in town, as he typically does, mm-hmm. gets run out of town, and at some point, like you said, in the future, maybe eight or nine years later, he receives a gift from the church in Philippi, and he sends this letter back. One of the things that's really interesting about the church in Philippi, and this is one of the things that makes this letter so unique, is... Paul has a very warm relationship with the Philippian church. One of the reasons is, unlike the churches in Galatia or Corinth or even Thessalonica, they don't have huge doctrinal problems in Philippi. So a lot of the other letters are consumed correcting doctrine, defending his own apostolic status. This church took to Paul immediately. And one of the reasons for that, if you read the book of Acts, is because there wasn't a huge Jewish population in this town. Right. Uh, and there weren't other teachers who were competing with Paul for the different gospel message, like we see in Corinth, mm-hmm. for uh, the church's viability. And so he establishes this great familial relationship with the church in Philippi. And this letter is one of the most personal and warm letters. In fact, some scholars have... have 
wondered if this letter is actually a different kind of letter altogether. The little mm-hmm. markers that you see in ancient letters right. have led people to think that this is actually what's called a letter of friendship a familial kind of letter that you mm-hmm. write to people that you're very close to, as opposed to uh, the kind of letter we see in other places in the New Testament, which is more of a letter that you expect to be read broadly. Think like the letter of Ephesians, for example, right. is more of an encyclical letter, whereas this is more of a personal mm-hmm. letter. And it has that feel. And I think one of the things that I think we'll come back to at the end is, you know, when you read the Bible, and especially when you teach the Bible— one of the things you want to do is you want to a certain extent to match your teaching as far as your tone and the flow of your lesson and um, the ethos of your sermon with the text. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't mean you have to speak in poetry when you preach the Psalms, but it does mean that you need to pay attention to the fact that you're speaking in images and comparisons and similes And I I just think a a series in Philippians is a great opportunity for a pastor to preach in the same tone that Paul preaches or or writes in this letter, which is one of uh, kind of an an empathetic and loving and caring tone. This can be the Mm -hmm. perfect thing for a church to have their pastor approach them in the same warm tone that Paul uses in the book of Philippians. Exactly. It's... A book that contains doctrine, but it's not mostly about doctrine. Mm -hmm. And so this wouldn't be the book you would teach as though you were teaching a doctrinal treatise. It's very pastoral. It's very, I hate to use the word life application because that means a lot in our time, but it really is very life application, a pastor to Mm -hmm. a congregation. Yeah, definitely is. And and you'll notice one one of the qualities of this letter is that Paul uses so much of his own life. Mm-hmm. to illustrate the points that he's making in this book. This this here and in 1 Thessalonians are probably the closest books in terms of Paul's personal example as an illustration in his writing. And that's a unique feature. For example, it's my view that Paul is writing this letter from prison in Rome about 60 I think he's also writing Ephesians and Colossians in this same general time period. You read the two, and you and they're very different. They're mm-hmm. written for their destination. Mm-hmm. You're right. This one, in none, neither of the others, does he tell much, if anything, about his situation of being in prison. Right. Yeah, and you can tell, too, that there's a really unique part of Paul's ministry when it comes to money. So he he likes the fact, when he's talking to churches like the church in Corinth or uh, Galatia or Colossae or any of those Mm -hmm. places to say that he doesn't take support from those churches. But we know in this letter that he receives support from the very beginning of his ministry from the church at Philippi. Mm -hmm. There's just, there's just all kinds of unique features of this letter that make it uh, kind of come alive. By the way, uh, I don't want to get too far in before we mention another resource. You wrote a preaching guide that was published at For the Church about the book of Philippians. And having read that, uh, maybe we'll just refer you to it because it is a preaching guide, but it covers some of the great themes and how to teach or preach this book. So mm-hmm. maybe you could put a link so our listeners could take a look at that. It's very yeah. useful. Yeah, I'll put a link on there. That was great to get to do. I love the preaching guides that they're doing. I think there's three of them right now. The goal is to do the whole Bible. It's very similar 
in a lot of ways to what we've been doing in our Bible overviews. And right. so when I reached out to Ronnie Kurtz about it, you know, it just seemed like a great crossover. Mm-hmm. And uh, he and his team are doing a wonderful job before the church. And so we'll link to that and explore the other resources. I think uh, Micah, maybe, and Jude are the others that are out there I right now. I think that's right. Both really well done. That's so, my top three right there. Yeah, Philippians top, and Micah and Jude. Top three books. <laughs> so anyway, those are those are definitely worth checking out. And, and they put out PDFs of the preaching guides. And those are just great to save. If you have a folder of Bible resources yes. and research, they're great things to kick off a study of the book, whether you're teaching it or just reading it in your quiet times or doing a small group or whatever. Well, uh, that might be a good time to kick off. In that preaching guide, what did you see as some of the key themes or motifs in Philippians? Well, I think, you know, Philippians is known as being the book of joy, Mm -hmm. which is true. It is a book about joy. But there are deeper things that lead to joy in the book of Philippians that I think are also worth mentioning. So Paul doesn't, doesn't just have a, you know, here's three steps to being more joyful. Instead, right. what, he, what he has is a full transformation that will lead to a life of joy. And so we teach joy from the book of Philippians that flows out of the transformation that we undergo in Christ. And I think the two parts of this that are really unique to the book of Philippians are the way that he describes transformation, first of all, is based in his own life. So his own encounter with Jesus Christ. And then Especially in chapter 3, you get the whole section where he says, you know, I count everything as a loss compared to knowing Christ. And he lists off his accomplishments, and he talks about how none of those things matter in comparison with knowing Mm -hmm. Christ. He says in 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ to be found in him. So that kind of transformation leads him to say, and so I press on towards the goal, Mm -hmm. the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. So the inward transformation uh, is what powers joy and contentment and Mm -hmm. perseverance and suffering and all the other themes that we see there. The other thing that I think is an underrated theme in Philippians is the way that he talks about the mind. Yes. So I think Philippians is primarily about how the mind changes when your heart is transformed. And you see this all through the book. I mean, almost every paragraph has some reference to thinking or your mind or like-mindedness. And probably, I think Philippians has three or four of the most prominent, famous, quotable verses in the New Testament. I mean, we think of Philippians 4.13, which we'll come back to, Uh um, which means you can win any sports game that you you find yourself in. But that's a real famous passage. Um, But I think maybe the most famous passage in terms of biblical studies is in chapter 2, where he talks about Jesus emptying himself, taking on the form of a servant. Just this beautiful description of what Christ has done. It's commonly called the kenosis. Mm -hmm. And there are some issues with that in terms of what kenosis means theologically. But it means to empty. And Mm -hmm. the... Part of it that I think is worth you know hanging on to is Jesus emptied himself so that he could become a servant and die on the cross for us. And then, you know, after that you get this great passage, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. Well, it's easy to miss that this passage is not just uh, teaching about Jesus. It's not just teaching about, you know, what happened when Christ came and died. Right. It's framed within the pastoral concern of the letter, which we see over and over and over again, Mm -hmm. is having the same mind. So in chapter 2, right before he gets there, he says, you know, complete my joy by having the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord. That means thinking the same way and uh, being of one mind. So we see that in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. I mean, it runs through the whole letter. This, If you are transformed, your thinking will transform. Right. Humble, be content, all these things. But the Christ-centered thinking, Christ-like thinking is a big theme. Yeah, I'd jump on that because I think that's not obvious to us. But if you think about the theme of unity in the church, because the kenosis, chapter 2, is right in the middle of a section about unity in the church. And that unity comes from having a Christ-like way of thinking that's very humble. You think about joy. You started out talking about joy. And and I would say, oh, it's about joy. He must be going to talk about emotional equilibrium. Uh, have a good therapist and be well-adjusted in the world. And while those are good things, what he talks about is a lot about uh, growing in knowledge and discernment and wisdom and Christ-like thinking leads to joy. I think that's something we miss sometimes because Philippians is an emotional letter. It's a Mm -hmm. personal letter. And yet at the heart of it is transforming uh, yourself by Christ-like thinking. Mm -hmm. I just think that's an interesting thread. Yeah, you know, back to that point in in chapter 1, verse 8, I came across this when I was studying this book. You can't see this as well in the English, but in the Greek, it makes it really clear in verse 8. It says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. That phrase, unless you're just very astute, downplays the, the approach that Paul is taking here. That, that phrase means I long for you with the same, and that word actually means gut mm-hmm. in the Greek. It, it's used to mean affection, right. but it means a very deep affection. It's like I long for you out of the very depths of who I am. But what he's saying here is I long for you out of the same heart that is Christ's. Mm-hmm. Jesus' mm-hmm. very affection. Jesus' own affection is how I long for you. And that's what creates joy and humility and Christ-like thinking is sharing in those kinds of mindsets that mm-hmm. are Christ and that are ours that we see because of the Holy Spirit. We have those things too. We can along with the affections of Christ Jesus. And when we do that, all the other themes follow. Right. You know, one of my favorite areas, you talk about the unity and the kenosis, the attitude of humility. You talked about... Uh, the uh, joy and how the right thinking chapter four is probably one of the best known chapters. And it starts with Philippians four, six through eight, you know, it gets to the idea of don't be anxious about anything, but through prayer and petition with Thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And now the peace of God guards your hearts and your minds And so you get this connection to very pastoral, and that is, look, I know you're anxious. I know you worry about a lot of things. I know you're a very small Christian minority in a not very friendly city. And so he talks about a lot of pastoral things, and he talks about it from the mind. 
probably my favorite is a little further, and that is in 410. Uh, he talks to them about, thank you so much for giving to me, but 411 uh, and 12 just lead up to that often misquoted verse, but he says, thank you for giving uh, to this ministry and thank you for helping me, but not, I don't say that because I am in need. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Mm -hmm. And I think if you think about it in a nutshell, this is what I've taught before and this is what I still believe. I've, I've thought about those two verses probably more than any other verses in the Bible over the last 30 years. Mm. I keep coming back and just meditating on it. When I say meditate, I want to understand it in my head, but I want to understand it experientially in my heart. And I think our world is is yearning for this idea of contentment, mm -hmm. of sufficiency. I've become an absolute fanatic about the Greek word behind this. Hmm. That word contentment shows up in the New Testament, but it also shows up in Stoic literature and other non-biblical literature at the time. And what we translate there as contentment is, for example, over in 2 Corinthians 12, this is a really known passage where Paul says, I prayed three times that God would take this thorn in my flesh, but God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That word sufficient, my grace is enough for you, it's sufficient for you, is this word. Mm. And so the idea of I've learned to be enough, sufficient in whatever yeah. circumstances I am. And there's something about that, Cole, that I have just really come back to that over and over through the years. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, a very powerful point. And there's a big contrast between the way you see this in the ancient world with Stoics and Greco-Roman philosophers. And, you know, there's a big resurgence of Stoicism today there that, is. that is, in some cases, very, very faithful to the Stoics. In some cases, it's not. It's mm -hmm. kind of just new, um, you know, kind of pop psychology right. with a with a with a label on it but yeah a lot of it is fairly faithful to the stoics who who are trying to make themselves invincible against fate and right. invinci invincible against the passions the vicissitudes of life the passions in our heart yeah. and, and fate what fate would bring and you know i think the biggest difference between what paul is saying here and what the Stoics are saying is the Stoics say that the key to life is detachment. Yes, exactly. And that is how you weather life, is by detaching from desire, detaching from uh, your fate, you know, to where, like Seneca could say, if, if you know, a ship crashed and all my, you know, prospects were on it, I lost nothing. You know, right. that's and that's kind of the modern Stoic thing, is to be so detached that something bad happens and you can say, I lost nothing. That is not the way that Paul describes contentment. In fact, Paul describes contentment as an increase in relationship. An engagement. With, exactly. It's an engagement with Christ, with the Holy Spirit. Being reconciled to God is the way that you can be content in every circumstance. So whereas there's a, kind of an outward movement in the Stoics, there's an inward movement in Paul. Mm -hmm. Not emotional dependency on other people, not unhealthy dependency in that sense, but mm -hmm. a total and complete dependence on God. You know, I think of a parallel passage in 2 Timothy where he's also in prison and he's also talking about not having anything. 
Right. You know, this he's is his second about, imprisonment, and he will be executed. Right. And he's in a much worse situation there right. than he is than when he describes it here. And he says, you know, a lot of people have left. I've been abandoned. And nobody was there at my first trial. But God stood by me and strengthened me so that people could hear the message. I think that's Paul's model for how to suffer well, how to be content, how to find himself in any circumstance being satisfied, being enough, like you said. Yeah, and this, what I just quoted you in verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content, sufficient. I know how to be brought low. I know how to be raised up. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And now comes verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, which is exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Standing alone at the trial, intimidated, surely, Mm -hmm. but being able to do whatever circumstances demand because of the one who stands with him. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's one of the most powerful things about Paul is that he didn't just say these things. We know that he lived these things. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, you, you can go, uh, we don't know in Rome necessarily where he was, but certainly in Caesarea, you know where he was being held. Right. Um, and the giant fortress that he was being held in and the opulence of the rulers there and the smallness that he must have felt. Mm-hmm. But the greatness that he felt because of the Spirit's confidence that he inspired in him and because Christ was strengthening him as 413 says. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's one of the things in Paul's own life that comes through in this letter. It's just his absolute dependence on God. Mm-hmm. And not just when things are going well. Right. Uh, his dependence on God when things were going horribly wrong. Right. I think that's probably I'm a teach soon a series on Philippians, but I would really like to teach it in a pastoral way because I think we have been, I don't think anyone would disagree that all Americans have been unsettled by our COVID experience and the the precautions and restrictions that come from COVID. And I think even if we may not be suffering persecution at the moment, we are trying to get a handle on this age, trying to make sure we have a foundation And I think that this letter and this part of this letter is the absolute answer that we need. That Mm -hmm. we don't have to look far for a foundation in any circumstance. I think that's exactly right. I can't think of anything more more, um, apt for the time right now. It would be great to have you teach through that. We'll link to that when the time comes. Are there any difficult passages in this book? So if you're reading through this letter in a quiet time, maybe, are there any places where you're going to pause and maybe want to look at a study Bible or wonder what's going on here? You know, I think there are a couple. One I'd love to get your take on is you mentioned the kenosis. This passage is so famous it has a name. Kenosis means empty or emptying. And so in chapter 2, it says, you know, have this same attitude or mind that Christ had who, even though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to hold on to. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of a human being. To what extent, what does it mean, Cole, that he emptied himself? I know that's an area of discussion and maybe some disagreement, but maybe sketch that out. What does it look like for Christ to empty himself? Yeah, this, this is a tough question in Christology, in the study of Christ, because on the surface you say he emptied himself, and, I, and I've certainly heard this before, that 
you know, when Jesus became, when he went from being the preexistent son, you know, to taking on flesh and being Jesus Christ, you know, a man, Mm -hmm. he left behind some of his divinity. Okay, that is what we call well-meaning heresy. That is not true. Okay, we, we can't square that with verses like Colossians 2.9, for example, that say, in him all the fullness of God dwells. Okay, Jesus is fully God, and he is fully man. We have to hold on to both of those things, no matter how we construe this passage or any of the others. Right. Um, and it's difficult on both sides, but we have to maintain that he is fully God. He doesn't put his divinity on pause to come be a human being and then take it back up when he gets to heaven. That's that's not what happens here. If that happens, then he can't redeem humanity. Right. So that's a big that's obviously a big problem. So we have to think, okay, what could this possibly mean? Paul doesn't have just a giant theological lapse here. He may be quoting something. That's one of the things. See, this may possible. have been a hymn. People go back and forth on whether or not this is original to Paul or he's quoting yeah, something. Um, but so what could it mean that he emptied himself? Most commentators think that this should be read in such a way that he doesn't empty himself of anything, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's the big question. If he empties himself, what part of himself does he empty? You know, his attributes, his foreknowledge, you know, but most commentators think if you look at the way this word is used, the object of what he empties is himself, he empties himself. It is like a posture. And, mm-hmm. and that's explained in the following phrase. So it says, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ, that he emptied himself. And how do we explain that? By taking on the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. He became nothing in respect to what he is uh-huh. so that he might die and save us. And so a lot of the commentators think that that is what Paul is talking about here, that emptying himself means lowering himself. And there's a, I think there's a lot of, of evidence behind that. I think there's a lot of good reasons for that. You know, one of the things that's so interesting about these verses is you could do a word study mm-hmm. on about six words in this passage and have your hands full for a year sorting right. through the material. Not just the kenosis, the emptying, but what does it mean that he took on the form of a servant? Right. What does it mean he, the likeness of men? What does it mean equality with God wasn't something to be grasped? That word grasped uh-huh. has, you know, hundreds and hundreds of articles written about what that word right. means. So that's what I think. What do you think? Well, I agree with you. And here's a, a way I tend to think about it because I get a lot of questions about uh, not just this passage, but also, do you think Jesus uh, knew everything when he was embodied? Do you think Jesus, you know, was omniscient? Was he omnipotent, etc.? In other words, basically asking this question. You know, one of the things I think of that's consistent with this passage is focus on humility. Mm-hmm. And Paul is obviously applying Christ's example to us. I think of it this way. See if, if you like the way I say this is I think he let go of his prerogatives. Yes. In, in a sense. And I think what Paul is saying is, you know, let go of your prerogatives and maybe humble yourself in the sense that even though you could rebuke someone, even though they may have done you wrong, let go of your pride, let go of your prerogatives. Because the mm-hmm. one thing I know Jesus did let go of is his honor, 
if you will, at being God and humbled himself to obedience, even death on a cross, which was a very dishonoring thing. Oh, yeah. So I think maybe sometimes it's letting go of our prerogatives, just humiliating our, or humbling ourselves to not insist on our rights, if you will. I think that's exactly right. And it fits with the thread in the context of the letter. It's easy mm-hmm. to lose the thread of what Paul has been talking about before when you get into an examination of what he's talking about here. And, mm-hmm. and what she said is exactly right. This is a passage about humility. Mm-hmm. And Paul is not making a theological point here. I mean, he is by what he says, but he's not attempting to make a theological point. Right. He's making a pastoral point and using Christ as an example. And, you know, the, the flow of the passage is really interesting here too. It's a lowering and then an exalting. Right. And this is the whole storyline of scripture is the lowering of Christ down to total um, obscurity compared to who he is, mm-hmm. born you know, as a poor Jewish man in the middle of nowhere in the history of the world, basically, if it weren't for him. Right. And uh, you know, in this passage, especially making himself a servant, going from the king of kings to a servant, being mm-hmm. um, mistreated and and humbled by human beings being killed, being hung up on a cross, stripped naked and hung up on a cross. And then later it contrasts it with verse 9. Therefore, because this happened, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So he is the lowest of low, and then he is the highest of high. And that's really the movement of the passage. And so mm-hmm. I think any, anything we mean by kenosis has to go with that movement, that right. he made himself low. The King James, I think, says he made himself of no reputation, which, which is a great way to really put it. Really pretty good way of putting it. You know, that ties into something you said earlier, is when you begin to, I mean, you have to let the text say what it wants to say, but as this whole discussion we've been having is we're trying very hard to be true to the tone of the letter. If this had been Romans, which mm-hmm. is much more doctrinal, I might put more weight on the doctrine of emptying himself. But as you pointed out, this is a very personal pastoral letter, in which case I'm looking more for an application, uh, you know, the idea of humility here and less uh, an abstract doctrine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. I think there are a couple of other interesting places. I, the one that always sticks out to me is in chapter 4, verse 2. Uh, so we finally get to the pastoral reason for writing. So the reason for writing, we said, is to return thanks for the gift, to send something back with Epaphroditus as he goes back to the church, uh, to thank them and to communicate with them. But the pastoral issue that he's dealing with comes about in verse three, uh, 2 and 3. I entreat you, Odia and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. So these women, probably leaders in the church, uh, of some kind are, you know, they're notable enough to get mentioned. Right. And they are having some kind of spat that Paul tells them, knock it off. Mm-hmm. But then he says, uh, he says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. So the question is, who is the true companion? And there are a lot of interesting things that people have proposed. I mean, all you need is kind of an open-ended question like this to see all the crazy concoctions that people over the uh-huh. last 2,000 years can make about this. So I, my, I think the most interesting one 
is the people that take this word in the Greek and they turn it into a proper name. Right. So Suzugus is maybe how we would pronounce it. It's it's not a Greek word. So right. I mean, it can mean a yoke fellow, um, someone who's working side by side with you. Right. And so companion. Uh, this name has never been recorded found anywhere else in yeah. the history of the Greek language, which makes it which makes it very unlikely. However, some people, some of the church fathers propose that maybe this word, which can also mean wife, mm-hmm. means that Paul had a wife that was in Philippi. <laughs> and, you know, you've heard the you've heard the term that when a church hires a pastor, they also hire the pastor's wife. Yeah. Well, this 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 is exactly what these guys would be concocting about this passage is Paul's wife is doing pastoral work on the ground here in Philippi. He's like, "Hey, you know, go ahead and help these people while uh-huh. you're back there in Philippi. There's no reason to believe this. There's no reason to believe that he's married. Uh, in fact, he says that he's not married. So mm-hmm. I take that as true. But it is interesting that that's what somebody came up with in this passage. Oh, maybe this is Paul's lost wife uh-huh. that, you know, he's invoking here. Um, but I think that there's very, very, very small chance of that. I think there's more of a chance that he wrote the book of Hebrews than so that there is wife. I'll put yeah. it that way. So anyway, uh, I think the most likely thing that's happening here is he's encouraging Epaphroditus, who uh-huh. will be delivering the letter and explaining the letter to help in this situation, to step in and mediate this dispute with these women. I think that's likely because he, Epaphroditus is going to read this letter. He said, and so you can see here, Paul asked me, to sit down with you and really appeal to you to agree in the yes. Lord. Can we find a way to agreement here? Yeah, that's that's what I think is probably going on. It's not as exciting as some of the other possibilities, but I think that's probably what, what he's saying. It's more exciting to have an abandoned wife in Philippi. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So to close the book, I mean, this one is a pretty easy one to uh, apply to your life. It's a, it's a great one to study. It's relatively easy to understand. What are the big takeaways that you have from studying this book over the years? Or what would be the word that you want to leave people with as they begin to study this letter? Yeah, I think this is a letter that speaks to, and as long as you want to study it, and as many times as you want to read it, I think it speaks to your heart. And when I read this letter, I think it makes me think about the transformation of the Christian life. Uh, Chapter 4, Uh, Verse 8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just and pure, lovely, commendable, if there's anything excellent or worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you learned and received and heard and saw in me, practice these things. It's This letter speaks directly to my walk in Christ, Mm -hmm. my daily practice in Christ. So I think of this as, most people think of James as a very practical letter, and it is. Mm -hmm. And they don't think of the letters of Paul as maybe that practical. I think of this as very practical. It hits me really well because it says, I want you to think like Christ, and then I want you to have the attitudes of Christ, and then I want you to act like Christ. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening. 
and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.